Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Lewis Reining. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll talk to Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska about Virginia politics, plus a look at Charlottesville's refugee community. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Giles Morris, the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Elliot Robinson, the news editor, and Billy Jean-Louis, education reporter of Charlottesville Tomorrow, to talk about a student-made movie that recently debuted, as well as a discussion around moving or removing the Lewis and Clark statue in downtown Charlottesville. So Billy, can you start off by telling us a little bit about the, the short film Nosotros that debuted at Lighthouse Studio recently and the event that took place? Of course. Uh, so, you know, these students, in talking to them, uh, they said they wanted to make a, mo- a video that would uh, have an impact on the community. Uh, there are people who don't know their stories. So they wanted to create a way to uplift students' voices and make them uh, heard in the community. So the Latinx Club's video is called Nosotros, which means uh, we. Uh, it features students sharing their reasons for migrating to the U.S., as well as the stereotypes that they face. UVA art students also produced an eight-minute animated movie about Maria Chavalon suit, uh, who migrated from Guatemala. Uh, there were nearly 160 uh, people at the movie premiere, but I'll tell you this, it was more than just uh, a movie premiere. Uh, it was an opportunity for the community to ask questions during the panel and after the viewings. Uh, so some of the questions were about the students' own experience, like ways that bystanders uh, can help immigrants when they're attacked and any types of discrimination that uh, students uh, might face in school. So I believe these were very relevant questions. So one of the Latinx students uh, said, listen, the best way to protect an immigrant who's been attacked is by stepping in and actually protecting that immigrant because that person is probably feeling uh, unsafe. Now, in terms of students experiencing discrimination in school, they said English for language learners, students face challenges being placed in uh, advanced placement, which is, which is also called AP classes and honors courses. Yeah, I visited the Latinx club at Albemarle High School um, in the fall of last year. And I think one of the things that I came away with um, with that group was, um, first of all, understanding that Albemarle High School is close to 30 percent Latino now, which is a huge percentage. And as we have these conversations about race and equity in Charlottesville, um, the voice of that population is rarely heard. Um, and the other thing, um, and this is anecdotal, but was that uh, a lot of the experience of those students at Albemarle High School is that they, they and or their families have arrived in the last four or five years. So these are teenagers who didn't grow up here um, and are coming here, you know, with pretty fully formed and then trying to navigate the school system here. Um, which is incredibly challenging, um, both from an identity perspective, cultural perspective, language perspective. 
um, and and from the schooling perspective. So I think um, you know for them to get their voice out in the community and start to instigate a conversation about uh, what what all of us can be doing to make their experiences better, more welcome, more in included in the mainstream dynamic of the system, but also just listening to them and understanding their story and their context um, is really important. Speaking of, of community, com other community issues, Elliot, you've been focused on something a little different this week. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of what you've been working on? Yes, this week there was a discussion at City Council about the statue of uh, Lewis and Clark and also Sacagawea, which has, at least over the past 10 years, because of the position that she's in. She, unlike Lewis and Clark, who are standing tall and gazing toward the West, she is in a crowd's position. And there have been uh, Native Americans who have come to Charlottesville and some who live here who have felt offended by the, the subservient position that she's in in this sculpture that's been at the intersection of Main Street and Ridge Street since 1919. In 2009, there was a push to have the statue removed, and one member of the audience at city council meeting had mentioned that there was a bit of a compromise of an interpretive plaque would be installed, and uh, Native Americans wrote the text of explaining uh, the work in the exploration to the West, and that was put up, and he said later on that one of his regrets is that they didn't fight hard enough to get the statue taken down. And now people see that with the West Main streetscape happening, where this is an opportunity to finally remove the statue. I think there's this larger theme about uh, Charlottesville's role in and view of its, uh, its own history. This is an incredibly historic town, but that history and the narrative surrounding it has been very closely tied and aligned to Thomas Jefferson, to the glorification of Thomas Jefferson. Lewis and Clark were his protégés in that conversation and the link between Jefferson's greatness and their greatness and the opening of the American West and the author of Liberty, these things are kind of part of one narrative. Um, if we have a newly interpreted narrative about the history, what does that look like? And how do you kind of impose that or, um, you know, portray that in public spaces? And so, you know, you have Court Square with Jackson, with the memorial to fallen Confederate soldiers, and then the tiny little plaque uh, representing the slave auction site. Um, you have the Lewis and Clark statue and then the Conqueror of the West statue on sort of bookends of Main Street. What are we going to do with these with these things? What do we have to remove? What do we have to reinterpret? Who drives those narratives? Um, what does the new narrative look like? I think these are really long processes, but you know, for the, for the elected officials to start instigating those conversations um, as we move in parallel towards the fall when we're likely going to have a, a, a trial um, um, surrounding the removal of, of the um, Jackson and Lee monuments, you know, these are important conversations for the public bodies to be taking up and putting back into um, uh, the sort of, a sort of transparent conversation about where we want to go together. Giles Morris is the executive director, Elliot Robinson, the news editor, and Billy Jean-Louis, education reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. 
You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM Network. T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and Tej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that. Opinions, not the position of the University of Virginia. Well, and we turn now to state news, and as we do, we talk with our correspondent based in the Richmond area, Peter Galaska. Peter, good morning. Hi. Hey. Um, so I want to talk this week about a strike. I guess uh, Uber and Lyft drivers in several cities around the country did uh, went on strike, and including one of those was a, a state lawmaker here in Virginia, Lee Carter, a Democratic Socialist from Northern Virginia. Take me through the story. Well, as you know, for, for a number of, of, of years now, um, the concepts of the Uber and Lyft um, sort of a... Uh, gig economy, you know, we're very freewheeling and open, and we can really do the job for you, um, and much more efficient than regular taxi cabs or everything else has really been kind of a buzzword. And yet there's a downside to it, and the fact is is that um, apparently a lot of um, drivers for both outlets um, believe that while their mother companies make millions up, over millions over millions, they're really not getting paid anything. Um, and that they, you know, they're really living off the books in some ways. I mean, you know, one of the things about the gig economy is that the mother company doesn't have to bother with usual expenses such as health insurance, um, you know, retirement and things like that. And uh, that, you know, many years ago used to be a given, given employment. And so it just seems to be a kind of a little flub up here, or maybe a bigger flub up, um, as people consider uh, new forms of, of um you know, management labor relations. Sure. The, one of the, the striking workers in an NBC News story, uh, her quote was, we want Uber to answer to us, not to investors. The gig economy is all about exploiting workers by taking away our rights. What's your, what do you think about, what, what's your response to that? Well, I don't know. In, in a sense, both sides are trying to have it both ways at the same time and have your cake and eat it too. The companies see this as a really cheap way to exploit labor, get a service done, and make a lot of money. And the other side says, no, wait a second, we do have freedom, they are our cars, we can work when we want to, I mean, it's easy, people pay us right away, I mean, usually through, you know, a card on a little disc or something, and, but then on the other hand, they're giving up a lot, and what they're giving up is job security, they're giving up benefits, and um, is this truly defining the future of, um, of labor? And, you know, I mean, it just it would kind of disturb me a bit. I know um, Carter's situation is, is that he, you know, he's a Democratic Socialist from up in northern Virginia, but, you know, his salary as a general assembly person is only like $17,000 a year, which is nothing. <laughs> it's pin money. So he does do um, one of the two to, to help make ends meet. But, I mean, it, it's just kind of, you know, it's a bit unsettling. I mean, do you really want to do, it's one thing for a college student or someone who just wants an extra job to, to you know, drive a car a little bit, but to make this really a serious endeavor is going to, it kind of belies a lot of, frankly, ethical things that should go into a job. All right, well, Peter, I want to change gears a little bit here and talk about a story that was in the New York Times this week about uh, a new pack. 
veterans groups, and particularly women veterans, uh, have gotten a lot more active in politics lately, uh, partisan politics, not just the sort of general veteran advocacy that they used to do. Uh, there's a new PAC this week um, uh, announced that uh, is building on some of the things that you and I noticed about Abigail Spanberger's run, uh, these women veterans running for office. Uh, take me through the story. Right. Well, there have been a number of women, Democratic women, um, in the past election, which was uh, a success for the Democrats, where you had women who um, had service in the military or the intelligence communities. One was Elaine Lurie, who was a nuclear officer in the Navy and was on ships helping run their nuclear plants. And you had Abigail Spanberger, who was an undercover secret operative in Western Europe and in Southern California. And there are a number of other ones, some people who are helicopter pilots and the like. And um, they're kind of different. I mean, they're, they're kind of a, a, a band apart from your traditional uh, PACs um, that run for various parties, especially the Democrats. And I've noticed a tenor in coming through when I've been dealing with some of these women, especially women, that, um, you know, they, they see, they're tr- trying to distance themselves, not just from the Republicans, obviously, but from the older, traditional de- re- Democrats who are pretty much taking the same old stuff. I mean, some of them take money from Dominion. Some of them, you know... Um, Still, it's business as usual. There's not a whole lot of change between their policies and the, and the Republican policies. And um, these people are coming from a different place in a different time. And I think you're seeing a split and something to split off and become new. And what, what's that going to look like? Well, I just think you're going to see, like, you know, more independence, uh, a separate set of PACs. Uh, you're going to see a pack that's going to be uh, kind of not really interested in getting money from big utilities and from big business or from big outfits or from big pharma, certainly not like the NRA or something like that. And they're going to be more interested in grassroots donations and things like that so they can figure that they can uh, really direct with their their uh, voters. I mean, there's there's an element of this that sounds a bit like a generational shift, but also in some ways a, a almost democratization of what used to be kind of a backroom, smoke-filled room sort of thing. Uh, where now anybody, you know, gets sort of latched onto a pack and can raise some funds and do more independent candidate development. Well, absolutely. Don't forget that not that many decades ago, I mean, the Democratic Party of Virginia was really the Republican Party of Virginia. And um, that was really the case under uh, uh, Harry Bud, uh, Harry Bird. And, um, you know, it's all backroom politics to the utmost. And you're talking about and, that, that kind of Dixiecrat era of... Yeah, uh, exactly. And, I mean, that went on down the line. I mean, you, it was a very, very limited elite that got involved in anything, even got in the back door. And, and then the, Democrat, the Republicans split away because of integration in the, in the 50s and 60s, creating the, today's Republican Party. So I think this is kind of a very important development politically. Well, Peter, thanks so much. All right. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center.
UVA students with Professor Stephanie Sarasso produced a three-part audio documentary series on the refugee community in Charlottesville. Today, we'll hear part one, a safe haven. I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine that it's nighttime, you had a long day, and you're finally getting into bed. Your family members are in their rooms, the house is quiet, and after tossing and turning for a while, you finally fall asleep. Suddenly, you're being shaken awake by your mom, and she tells you that you have to leave your home right now. Even worse, you may never return to your country again. There's no time for questions. All you know is that you are in danger and you have to leave. I'm Brad Joseph. And I'm Amanda Patton. And this is Refugee Realities, a podcast series where we interview local refugees to explore their individual journeys and the obstacles they've had to overcome. Over the course of three episodes, we will be talking to several refugees in the Charlottesville area to learn about how their lives have changed since they were displaced from their homes. To offer a basic definition, refugees are people who have been forced to leave their country in order to escape war or persecution. Seeking asylum in another country is often a long and difficult process. Many refugees spend months or years in refugee camps where they may struggle to obtain visas and become stuck in limbo between countries and borders. In today's episode, we'll be talking to the director of a Charlottesville-based nonprofit that provides support for refugees to learn more about why refugees are relocated here. We'll also be interviewing a refugee from Western China to get a glimpse into the violence that forces people to seek asylum. But before we get into the podcast, I want to give a quick shout out to the other members of our team at Refugee Realities, including Ahmad Framand, our outreach manager, and Melvin Mora, our audio engineer. This podcast began with one simple question. When refugees are seeking asylum, what brings them to Charlottesville, Virginia? For those of you who aren't familiar, Charlottesville is a large town in central Virginia with a population of approximately 48,000 people. Many people know that Charlottesville is home to the University of Virginia, but fewer people may know that Charlottesville is also home to a significant refugee population. 6% of Charlottesville's population are refugees. That's approximately 3,000 people, which is a fairly substantial amount for a town this size. So to get a better understanding of how Charlottesville's refugee population came to be, we spoke to Kari Miller. Kari is the founder and executive director of International Neighbors, a nonprofit organization in Charlottesville that works with refugees. Kari used to teach English as a second language here in Charlottesville, and working with students who are refugees opened her eyes to how many people need help in our community. International Neighbors was considered for probably a decade. I was a teacher in the city and for about 10 years thinking, somebody should do something, somebody should do something. We're getting these refugees placed here through the government, but they were missing so many things. And I realized nobody else was doing anything about it. And um, so in 2015, Incorporated IN to serve our refugee community. We have programs for children, for families, for men, for women, and community. Kari has worked closely with many of the refugees in the city for the past few years, and she knows a lot about what they have gone through and where they come from. So we wondered why Charlottesville is the home to so many refugees. Are refugees placed in Charlottesville because of resources available in the city, or just because there's space here? Apparently it is because of three factors, one being the public transportation system, that we have one, Um, low unemployment rate, and the UVA Medical Hospital. So those are the three reasons. 
With an extensive public bus system, ample job opportunity, and a top-tier health system, Charlottesville has been selected as a suitable city for refugee relocation. We asked her to tell us more about the refugee population in Charlottesville. Fifteen years ago, there were a lot of refugees coming from Somalia, and now most recently we have Syrians being placed pretty often. I think Charlottesville accepts 240 each year, and so now quite a few from Afghanistan and Iraq. Many are refugees or SIVs, which are special immigrant visa holders. They come the same path, but the SIVs worked for the U.S. military in Afghanistan or Iraq, and often as interpreters or translators. So so they are coming and really are war heroes. You know, they worked alongside our soldiers and they can't live back in their country because they're known to have jumped over the fence to our side. But um, I know of six families who've been here and also returned back to, the, to Afghanistan or Iraq because it was too difficult to survive in Charlottesville. Um, we also have quite a few from Burma via Thailand and then Bhutan via Nepal and the Congo, also Burundi. So anywhere that there's really been atrocities and war that these remarkable people have been able to overcome. It's a common misconception that the entirety of the refugee population originates from the Middle East. When in reality, refugees exist wherever there are atrocities in the world. Some people come from China to escape the religious persecution at the hands of the Chinese government. Some come from Afghanistan to escape an active war zone. Some come from the Democratic Republic of the Congo to escape the ongoing armed conflicts in the country. And many come from several other countries like Syria, South Sudan, Myanmar, and Somalia. For today's episode, we spoke to a Uyghur woman from the western part of China, officially known as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region of Western China. If you were to look at a map of China, the entire northwestern chunk of the country that borders Turkey is the Xinjiang region. The Uyghur people are an ethnic minority in the region who speak Uyghur, a Turkic language, and they primarily practice Islam. Currently, many ethnic minorities in China face persecution due to their minority status and religious affiliation. The woman we spoke to today asked us to omit her name for this interview. So for the remainder of the podcast, we'll be referring to her as Emily. I'm from western part of China called Xinjiang. I lived here till I was 16 years old. Emily arrived in the U.S. in 2013 as an international student and she explained how appalling the conditions in her home of Xinjiang were. She shared one of her first memories of the Chinese government infiltrating her hometown and persecuting her people. Just a warning to listeners, there are mentions of intense violence and mass killings in her interview. One of the events I remember very clearly, it happened in July of 2009, which is the second latest uh, massacre which I witnessed by myself. That's the end of the middle school that summer. So me and my brother went outside to meet with my parents. However, that day we came across this killing, those people are running and the mob actually are, you know, beating those people on the ground. And I was so terrified. We were so terrified that we don't know what to do. So we hide into a shop and wait till my parents come to pick us up, and we went back home. To reiterate, Emily was only in middle school. 
At ages 11 to 13, our biggest worries are typically about keeping up with the latest fashion trends, who has a crush on who in our math class, or petty fights with your BFF. But for Emily, her only worry was to stay alive. She realized that she was in the middle of a protest of the Uyghur people against the Chinese government. So the next day, the Chinese people, actually those Chinese citizens, and together with the military forces, they marched towards our Uyghur concentrated area, and they are pulling out the people from the building, and they are killing them in the yard, you know, in, in the community. Some people are being killed right away, some are injured very badly, and, and that event continued for about two days, and nobody come out, no military police has come out to beat them back or something, protect us. They just allow them to kill our people. After witnessing this horrific massacre of her people, Emily hoped that the violence would end. However, she explained that the situation only got worse for Uyghur people. Emily and her family members experienced intense discrimination at work and in school from other non-Uyghur Chinese people. My parents were receiving those all kinds of discrimination, prejudice, you know, uh, all those negative treatment from the Chinese people. So they have suffered enough, and they don't want the same thing happen to us. So they spend the money and all they have to send us abroad. So I'm able to come to America as an um, international student. But once we came to America, we changed our status. We applied for the asylum approval, and we've been granted um, in 2014. When they first arrive in America, refugees do not completely escape the situations they're fleeing from. Some of them still face the repercussions of their escapes in various ways. Emily told us about the persecution her family faced from the Chinese government. Although Emily and her brother managed to escape from China, her parents had to stay behind. The Chinese government constantly questioned her parents about the whereabouts of Emily and her brother. Their goal? To recruit Emily and her brother as spies, so they could gain information on the whereabouts of other Uyghurs living in America. Emily and her parents were not able to stay in touch due to phone tapping and surveillance of the Chinese government. So their only option was to cease all communication. So, I'm really glad that I cut off my relationship, but that's a really painful decision to do because I'm not, I was not able to talk to my mother for, you know, completely no message from her for, uh, for a semester or so. And I, and I get to know that actually she got some psychological problem, like she's been depressed. She wanted to kill herself um, because she is living such a big pressure, um, even though she's not in the re-education camp, or, or to say the re-education prison, but she's feeling like living in an open prison already, because police is everywhere, and she's been constantly being contacted by the police to, um, to, get, to give our information. To clarify, the re-education camps that Emily mentions are internment camps set up by the Chinese government. These camps operate outside of the legal system and are used as a prison for Uyghurs and other Muslim ethnic minorities living in China. They are detained without due process and for indefinite sentence times. Emily emphasized the importance of raising awareness about this massive human rights violation happening in Xinjiang. There's a lot of people um, who actually do not know the existence of the refugee or asylee. This re-education camp issue happened in west western part of China, my hometown, Uyghur, Xinjiang. Uh, to my people, there's about one million people being detained in this re-education camp. 
And even though there was a lot of voices coming out who are supporting us, and we really appreciate that, but, but I want more people to hear about what's happening to us, what's happening to this one million people, Uyghur people living in western part of Xinjiang, western part of China. So Emily had to start an entirely new life in America. She had no choice but to come to a country where she was unfamiliar with the language and culture to escape persecution. And so many people around the world have similar experiences. For some of us, Charlottesville has been the only home we've ever known. But for others, it might be a new home that they're still settling into. Regardless of how long someone has been a part of our community, they are our neighbors. And we all play an important role in making our city a great place to live in. Thank you for listening to Refugee Realities, a podcast series revealing the stories of refugees in Charlottesville. In this episode, we looked at some of the struggles refugees go through that force them to leave their homes. Next time, in our second episode, we will be interviewing two refugees from Afghanistan, a mother and her son, to take a look at the generational differences that have affected their experiences in America. that's going to do it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Louis Reining. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moen Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TEEJ.FM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week.